in John chapter 2. So let's turn to John chapter 2. So much was learned about the person and work of Jesus Christ in, in the first chapter of this wonderful gospel. And, and I like the fact that, that that first chapter really establishes immediately the eternal nature of the Messiah. In the beginning was the Word, the Word that had no beginning and no end. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we learn so many titles throughout this chapter, chapter 1, Son of Man, Son of God, Mashiach, Christ, our Teacher, our Master, our Lord, and our Savior, the Light of the world, the very essence of the love of God in the person and work of Jesus. And then as he began his public ministry, at least from John's perspective, and you have to remember now that John is writing this from a totally different perspective than, than uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're told a little bit about the baptism, but not with the words of baptism, but actually the words at baptism. Because John the Baptist is introduced to us, who gives testimony of what he heard from God the Father about his own son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we know from the other Gospels that that was about Jesus. And so, after all of this took place, Jesus began to bring together his disciples. We learn that as he takes hold of men like Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel, John, the writer of the gospel, as well as his brother James, these are probably the six disciples so far. And we'll see how uh, this particular uh, account lets us know that Not all the disciples are yet the twelve together. So it's early on still in in the ministry of Jesus. We were given a little uh, chronology, as I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, in, uh, in, in bringing us to this particular chapter. Certain days are mentioned. The first day, the second day, the third day. And then the implication of three other days, because then we end on this third day after these other disciples have come. And we're told on the third day in verse 1 of chapter 2. Let me see if I can get this thing to work. Maybe I just need someone to start me. There it is. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. I'm not having... And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And again, I want to point out that it says, and his disciples, at this point, it doesn't say the twelve. Many times later on in the Gospels, we see them mentioned as the twelve, but not here. I'm not very happy with the fact that I'm not controlling this. I'm not. 
Okay, see, it works sometimes and it doesn't work. Can you take me back a slide? No, back. Help me, please. I don't know if it's the battery or what. Well, if that's where we're going to stand, then let's stand right there because that's really the next slide. <laughs> you can forget the picture of the six big water pots, okay? There they are. Forget that. By the way, those are six water pots. Those aren't uh, bowling pins. Just want to let you know. Okay. So as we press on now into the second chapter of John's Gospel, it is essential that we recall a couple of key points. Because at the onset of our study of John's Gospel, I mentioned that John builds his Gospel around seven miracles and seven I Am statements of Jesus. I want to make one small modification to this. In mentioning seven miracles, this was based on the King James Version's use of the word miracle when considering what is in fact seven signs. Because the word that is used for those seven signs is the word semeon. Now they are miracles, by the way, but John uses the word semeon, which is the word for sign. Now let me explain. There are three words that are used in the New Testament to describe what we call miracles in other words, what we would consider as evidence of the supernatural. The Apostle Peter, in fact, used all three words on the day of Pentecost when he reminded his Jewish brethren of the amazing and wonderful ministry of Jesus. <laughs> you men of Israel, I'm a little upset at this little thing here, it's not working. You men of Israel, hear these words. Now remember, this is Peter preaching at uh, the temple. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Now notice he uses all three words. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Now miracles is the word in the Greek dunamis or dunamis. Most of us know the word dunamis from Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where it tells us, and you sh but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. The word power is the word dunamis in the Greek. We get the word dynamic or dynamite in other words of that nature. But dunamis just means powers or mighty works. So whenever we see the word miracles, sometimes it is referring to the powers, just the miracles themselves. And I'll explain that again in just a moment. Oh, why am I even messing with this thing? Why? Okay, now let me try it, okay? Because I think we're, now we're fighting. No, nothing's happening. We don't have any batteries for this thing, do we? I'm really kind of, kind of throws us off here. Now, let me go ahead and just, you just help me here, okay? Please. All right, we already did that one. Let's go to the next one. Wonders. All right, wonders. You have to press it one more time. Because then you get the little word coming up. There it is. No, don't go on. You got to help me here. One at a time. Terrace. Okay, terrace. Now that, that's, you know, wonder means wonder. Okay. 
It is used once by John in John 4.48. You see a miracle and what do you do? Wow! That's the wonder part of it. And then there are signs. And there's Simeon. A sign. So, here's what we have to understand about the Gospel of John. This word, Simeon, is used by John 17 times in the Gospel. 17 times in the Gospel, but translated in the King James Version 13 of those times. Now, it is important to understand the difference between these three words. For example, the word dunamis is also used to describe what we know as the gift of miracles. The gift of miracles. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10 says, to another the working of miracles. So these, you know, this is where Paul is describing what the gifts are in the church. And so he says to another, because that means before this there were others mentioned. To another the working of miracles. I just want to point that one out. The working of miracles. The word miracles, there is the word dunamis or dunamis. If you go down to verse 28, it tells us that God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles. And there again is the word dunamis. Interesting that that is a gift. A gift of miracles and then gifts of healings, helps and so on. And there are other words for healings, helps, government. So miracles then is a gift that is often used. Somebody may have the gift of miracles, a gift of that power. God is using it. It's God's power. It's God's miracle. It's God's work. But is it is through a person in the church. We have to also understand that the three Greek words, dunamis, uh, teras, and semeon, are also used to describe the satanic powers and signs and lying wonders of the Antichrist. In one verse, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 9, it says, Even him, speaking of the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, dunamis, and signs, semeon, and lying wonders, terra. Now, Here's the thing, during the time of the Antichrist, the people are going to see this power kind of working. They're going to see signs, which is the significance of that power. I'll explain that in a minute because I want to get that to the definition of the word signs. And then the lying wonders. Notice it's not just wonders. Wow, but they're lying wonders. Everybody's saying wow to things that are really not Good, it's deceitful. We could even call it, in in, in essence, if we study, you know, when we do study about this Antichrist and the things that he does, lying wonders is just false wonders. And therefore, they, they, you know, it's it's, uh, like sleight of hand, as it were, you know. It's just not his power. Now, the reason I bring this up is for us to see the distinctions between the three words. So, for example, the powers, the word powers indicates the manifestation of obvious or apparent power. In, it, in other words, it's the miracle itself, or it's the, it's the power itself being used. 
Secondly, the word wonder emphasizes the effect produced on those who witness the mighty work. In other words, they see the work and they are drawn to then the power or the miracle. And the word signs now underscores the value of significance of the mighty work. What is the value of the power? What is the value of the miracle? With these things in mind, I want you to consider that of all the miracles produced, fashioned, and formed by the Lord Jesus, John records only eight. And all of them are called signs. That means that he wants us to notice the significance of what it is that Jesus did. Now the question is, how many signs does John record? Now I know I just told you eight. But why do I ask a question? Because some people say seven. Others would say eight. And both, in fact, are right. There were seven signs recorded by John that were presented during the earthly ministry of Jesus. During the three and a half years of Jesus ministering on this earth, there were seven signs. The eighth sign was done after the resurrection of Jesus. So the signs then in the gospel, here I go again, not working here. So the signs in the gospel of John are these. Let's go one at a time. The first one is what we're looking at tonight. Turning water into wine. That's second, uh, second chapter, verses 1 through 11. Two, healing an official son. That's in chapter 4. Verses 46 through 54. You can write these down or just wait because pretty soon we'll get there. Third one is healing a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 5 verses 1 through 15. Uh, there are a few of you that have been to Israel with us and, and you've gone to the pool of Bethesda and it's, it's quite a nice place to go. Uh, and then uh, fourthly, feeding the 5,000. That's in chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. Now this is a very important one because this is recorded in all the Gospels. This one sign, or miracle as it were, was recorded by all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Five, Jesus walking on the water. On this one, it is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke does not record this part. They're, they're right together with the feeding of the 5,000. There's a feeding, and then there's this event where Jesus walks on the water. The sixth, uh, that's seven. Healing a man born blind is in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And then 7 is raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. The eighth, after the resurrection, there was a second miraculous catch of fish. The first one is actually in Luke, I believe it's in Luke chapter 11, was the first miraculous catch of fish. This is the second miraculous catch A fifth uh, fish is where Jesus is on, you know, the seashore there the Galilee waiting the guys are already given up on hope and they've gone out to fish and the Lord tells them hey look cast your down on the other side well we'll get there one of these years here in the book of John so as we prepare to enter into the account of the first sign let me just say that it is of great interest and significance that the first sign of Jesus public ministry was at a wedding and the last was at a funeral Think about that. 
That is of the first seven. The first was at a wedding. The last was at a funeral. But it wasn't a very long funeral. Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The first sign was connected with one of life's gladdest events, a wedding. While the last was connected with one of life's saddest events, from the gladdest to the saddest. But what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about the Lord who loves us with an everlasting love? That whatever we go through in this life, He's going to be with us through the glad times and through the sad times. Through the blessed times and through the toughest times. Jesus is going to be there. I also find it interesting that Moses' first sign before Pharaoh was turning water into blood. You remember that back in Exodus? And Jesus' first sign was turning water into wine. Interesting, isn't it? This is kind of a significant way to consider John 1.17, where it tells us for the law. No, that's not John 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so now as we come to focus our attention on this particular event, it is really what we're going to look at in a general sense, the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ. By the way, when you think about it, all eight signs reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. All eight signs. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2 of our text. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. As already mentioned in a previous study, this third day gives indication that this was now the end of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. It brings us to the end of a week, to a marriage. Now let's consider some just symbolically things. The end of a week to a marriage. Does that... Ring a bell for anyone. Well, this actually corresponds so well with what we have seen in the book of Genesis, where after six days of creation, there comes a marriage. Adam, created by God, is put to sleep. And the Lord takes a rib from his side. And from chapter 1 to chapter 2, we go from the six days of creation to a marriage that God blessed. So if this is the case, then John is wanting us to compare and to contrast the first week of Jesus' ministry with the last week of his ministry because his last week begins in John 12 verse 1 it says in Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany six days before that's indicating to us this is now the last week of Jesus and in the last week there comes 
a death. But not for long. Because Jesus is put into a grave, a tomb, and three days later, he comes out of the tomb, alive. And so, the Lord and his disciples, as we see in the first two verses, were obviously invited to a wedding in a place called Kefer Kena, the village of Cana, which we learn in chapter 1 was Nathaniel's hometown. Nathaniel was from Cana of Galilee. Now Cana is three miles northeast of the town of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. We're told that Jesus' mother was there at the wedding feast as well. By the way, John never called Jesus' mother by her name. He always called her the mother of Jesus, assuming that she is known to his readers. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus was called, as were his disciples. An interesting word, called to a wedding, called to a marriage feast. He was bidden, B-I-D-D-E-N, to come. And he came with his disciples, who were probably at the time Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel. Now think of this calling, this bidding, as a loud vocal invitation because when you look at the root of this particular word it's 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 like a call out to so think of it as a loud vocal invitation to have Jesus be a part of your wedding and marriage for the rest of your lives I mean that's quite an invitation isn't it you know when people plan weddings and they sit down and they start compiling a list of how many people they want to come and who they want to come and have, you know be a part of this thing and you know around El Paso if you know anything about our culture and 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 everything you know a lot of people invite themselves to wedding feasts and and wedding parties you know there's always the crashers a lot of wedding crashers i think we we have people in El Paso that have degrees you know master's degrees in crashing weddings because they, they just seem to be a lot more people than people expected but do you have you ever noticed that the for the most part the bride and the groom don't care they just see all these people they say oh well, I don't know who that is but I don't know who that is I don't know who that is but but you know they just uh, they're just so happy why because it's a very festive occasion and to have Jesus be a part of your wedding that's really the most important part of it at all, of all, isn't it? Because that's what's going to make it last for a good long while. He should be invited to every wedding, I think. Because marriage was a joyful, happy time, and it still is, and it should be. A festive occasion, as it, as it, as it should always be. And, and it was certainly one of the largest social events in any community, and still is to this day especially in the Middle East in general and in the land of Israel in particular. His, his participation in this wedding tells us two things about Jesus. First of all, it tells us that he was, a, he was a fairly social person. Actually, I shouldn't say fairly at all. He was a social person. He loved people. 
You might think, well, he should. That's right, he should. He came for us. He came for all that he created. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He, he loves us. I mean, that's, that's a very social thing. That's a very important part of social things is having a love for people. He liked people, and for the most part, people, people liked him. A lot of people followed him. He was not bothered in any way in having dinner with sinners. Whether they be prostitutes or tax collectors, he had dinner with them all. He would even have dinner with Pharisees. This attitude through his example would continue through the, through, into the body of Christ, in and through the body of Christ. For example, Acts 2.42, uh, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And then Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, he says, distributing to the necessity of the saints, no, distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. We're, we're all called to have this kind of heart like Jesus. Of being able to help where help is needed and, 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 and give hospitality, welcome people, was something that Jesus taught his disciples. And then tells us that it's, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Titus 1 verse 8, uh, Paul tells Titus there, a love, we're to be a lover of hospitality. This is actually speaking of elders. Others that have to be, have a love of hospitality, a love of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. You want to be a leader in the church, you have to love people. And you have to welcome them, and you have to love them, and you have to be with them. Secondly, Jesus honored marriage. This is the other thing that we, we see that very important about Jesus. He, he actually honored marriage, didn't he? Honor the way, the right and proper marriage. Because of his word, his word that he established through the power of his Holy Spirit. Am I, am I on now? No. So in this case, he demonstrated his approval and honor in two ways. He attended the marriage feast And he met the, the urgent need of the bridegroom. For it was the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure everything was where it needed to be and what needed to be there. And that brings us to verses 3 through 5. <laughs> and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Stop for just a moment. We're not talking about winos. I want to make that real clear. Because in the Jewish religious tradition, and even in Scripture, we're told that, that wine in and of itself was used at times of joyous occasions and was to be used at times of joyous occasions. The problem, of course, came with the overuse of it. And then, of course, there had to be some Statements, statutes, laws, proverbs, things that would remind them, listen, don't be long at the table with the wine. You know, if we're going to use it, uh, we're going to use it for the right reasons. So it says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. 
Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. This seems, most people would say, it seems a little rude of Jesus to talk to his mother that way. Well, let's go on. Because his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's an interesting little uh, conversation there. An exchange of words. It would be good for us at this point to mention that this miracle or sign demonstrated Jesus' very purpose for coming to earth. Not just to bring wine to everybody. That's not it. But it is to reveal the creative power of God. It is to reveal the creative power of God. He had the power to create and to produce what was needed to meet man's needs. We have to see that in the general sense of what was taking place here in Cana. Now, the interest that Mary took in the feast and the way in which she addressed the servants in verse 5 suggests that she was probably a very close friend or even a relative of the bridegroom's family. The dilemma was that they had run out of wine. Now, listen to this. Nothing could be more devastating and embarrassing at a Middle Eastern wedding as running out of food and drink at a public occasion. At a wedding, it was catastrophic. It wasn't to be that way. And though she merely stated the unfortunate condition to Jesus, her statement appears to be a concealed petition to Jesus that would remedy the situation as Jesus answers or answer shows. It wasn't strange that she petitioned him in this manner. I mean, she treasured certain things in her heart about Jesus. And she had them in her heart for many, many years. Practically 30 years up to this point. Because we're told in Luke, look at what it says in Luke chapter 2 verses 16 through 19. It says, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You all remember when this took place. Verse 17, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But notice verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. In other words, all the things that were happening within those first two years of Jesus' birth, the star, the angels, the gifts that came from far east, the shepherds that came, all of these things she pondered in her heart. The visitation of Gabriel to her to, 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 to announce to her That she was going to bear the Son of God. And then in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Now when was this? This was when he was 12 years old and they had gone to the, he had gone to the temple and was actually there teaching the teachers at the temple. And he went down to them and came to Nazareth and and was subject unto them. This was afterwards. And and it says, notice, after all these things, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Kept all these things. Everything that was taking place, she kept in her heart. Along with those thoughts, Mary still had a social concern. Okay, let's not forget that. The need that arose was extremely serious, for the wine was already gone and the celebration had just begun. There was a whole week of celebration left to go. It just started. 
And they had no wine. And they needed wine for seven days. Who doesn't? I'm just kidding. Don't. I'm just trying to see if you're still awake here. Okay, still with me. She didn't want the joyful spirit of the guest dampened and the couple to be shamed and humiliated. Because that's what would happen in a situation like this. So the deeper concern, now that was her concern. I mean, she had these things. She, she approached him knowing what she knew about her son. But then she opposed him with, with a valid concern that was a, a very uh, uh, appropriate and necessary concern at that moment. But the deeper concern belonged to Jesus himself. The deeper concern belonged to Jesus who, to meet man's spiritual need for regeneration. How do we know that? Well, in Mary's concern, he saw a unique opportunity to be to begin familiarizing her with the truth of who he was. The Son of God who entered the world for a particular hour. And whenever you see that Jesus mentions my hour, whether he says my hour is come or my hour is not come, always understand that the hour that he speaks of is the hour of the cross. It was in her, it was in his statement to her, his statement where he said to his mother, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It is in that statement that Jesus put Mary in a new relationship to him. He put Mary in a new relationship to him. Now, understand, there was no harshness in the term woman. It was a very courteous, very respectful word. Much like in the English language today, when you, you know, people misuse this word a lot, but you know, when we say woman, it's not a bad thing, it's the way some people use it, it's how they say it. The most appropriate word to talk of, of someone in a very respectful way is to call someone a lady. That's, that's the general term of, of a female, a lady. And you know there's a difference between a lady and a woman. A woman, of course, is just a woman in what she is uh, as, as far as her gender is concerned. But a lady is one, you know, it's, it's a term of respect. So that is kind of what is being said here. Well, not kind of. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's calling her in a very courteous and respectful way, woman. But the emphasis of this phrase has this meaning. And and so I I just want to encapsulize it in in this statement. In effect, what Jesus said to his mother, now calling her woman, he said, you are not the mother of that in me which worketh miracles. Did you get that? You're not the mother of that in me which works miracles. To that extent, the what have I to do with thee phrase is a mild rebuke of sorts. It is saying to her with the most sincere courtesy and respect, please leave me to act as I please. 
Leave me to act as I please. In other words, and this is where you have to see the, 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 the change now in the relationship. He, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is independent of all human relationships in the exercise of his Messiahship. Jesus is independent of all human relationships in the exercise of his being Messiah. Two things we learn here. First, Mary was blessed, but not immaculate. And she'd be the first one to tell you that. In fact, she tells us that in the Magnificat when she calls Jesus her Savior. A person who is immaculate does not need a Savior. So Mary was blessed but not immaculate or else she would not have been rebuked by Jesus in a very loving way. And secondly, her intercession in this matter was to some degree not, not recognized by Jesus. Her request had in it more than a desire for the gift of wine. It was to have Jesus manifest himself as Messiah. So he says, mine hour has not yet come. There are a number of verses in the Gospel of John in which Jesus states this phrase. He says it a lot. I don't want to go through the whole list of them. But it is significant that his first reference to this hour was to his mother. The last reference was to his father. In John 17 verse 1. He said, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. And this is why we need to understand that every sign in John that is given to us Every sign that is a significance to the miracle that is, that is done is to give glory to Jesus Christ. But the greatest is the cross. And we'll see that in, in just a few minutes. Jesus gave many secondary manifestations, in other words. His miracles, for example, were secondary manifestations of his messianic glory. But his passion, in other words, his going to the cross, his going to, uh, well, being arrested and taken and beaten and, and going through everything that he went through on our behalf. And to be taken to the cross and nailed on the cross and, and, and dies on the cross, all of that. That was the supreme manifestation. The supreme revealing of his glory. Think of John 8.28 here because uh, we're going to give you a couple of things where he says, uh, Jesus said, when, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. When you lift me up, he's speaking of his own death on the cross. 
And listen to what he says in John 12. Remember the last week of Jesus now in John 12, where the last week of Jesus begins here. In in verse uh, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Save me from this hour, but this is why I came to this hour. Even in that verse, you see the tension between his being man and being God. And so getting back to Cana and the wedding feast and the need that they had, what does Mary do? All that Mary could do was to turn to the servants and to us. It was to turn the servants and us away from herself. Now listen carefully. I mean what I say here. All that Mary could do was to turn the servants and us away from herself to her blessed Son, Jesus Christ. And what did she say? Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. And so in verse 6 it says, There were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, Containing two or three firkins apiece. I tell you, I'm falling in love with that word firkins. Uh, a firkin, by the way, is a, about 10 gallons. And so what you have here, two or three firkins apiece, would be 20 or 30 gallons each in a stone water pot. These were big. And they were very, very heavy duty stone uh, things. Okay, verse 7. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, as far as the water could go. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, the governor being the actually the master of ceremonies. If, if you want, uh, you could call him the wedding planner, you know. I don't know if they had him back then, but you know, he was the one in charge of everything on behalf of the bridegroom. So he says, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. In other words, he didn't know where it came from. But the servants knew, uh, which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. In other words, well, you know, they, they, they would put out good wine at the beginning. And then, you know, when everybody's getting a little bit too festive and all, they bring out, uh, you know, the, the cheaper wine, the lower grade stuff. And this guy says, wait a minute now, we already ran out the first day and... and and, and now we're getting the, the best stuff here at the end. The best at the end. 
Verse 11. It says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, the beginning of signs, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So there came this revealing of the creative power of Christ. The six water pots. The revealing. <laughs> the six water pots were used both for drinking water and for the purifying and cleansing of the Jews. That is, the ceremonial and religious cleansing of the hands and utensils. It goes on even to this day. When you go to certain hotels where uh, you know people go to Israel and uh, stay, uh, they have certain places that are just for the Jews to go and wash up. It's, it's a ceremonial area, you know. It's 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 very special for them, and 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 it's 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 amazing, just wonderful to see how they do that. But the six water pots here again were used for for not only drinking but also the purifying and cleansing. Of their hands, their utensils. And when a Jew saw the water pots, he knew that they were both for satisfying his thirst and for religious cleansing. So Jesus used the water pots to show that he had the power to purify, the power to cleanse, and the power to satisfy men. And to create and produce whatever was necessary to cleanse and to satisfy men. And what's interesting about that is what did he turn the water into? He turned it into wine. What was the wine supposed to be a symbol of? What would it then become the symbol of? It would become the symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we read in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is what Jesus was concerned about. This was the deeper concern of Jesus. That when he would begin to, pre, to, to show forth his glory, the glory was going to be that which would cover every reason why Jesus came. Not just to meet certain social needs, but to meet the greatest need of the heart. The sinful heart. The impure heart. The lost heart. Paul says in Titus 3 verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing of regeneration. What Jesus did, he always did to bring us to that focus, to bring us to that point, to bring us to that central and key element of the Christian life. And something that, that I, I, I really came to appreciate in reading this passage and in studying this passage was that Jesus, in fact, and always saves the best for last. The fact of the matter is, He is the best. He 
He gave all of the pictures. He gave all of the uh, the shadows in the Old Testament and the in the Hebrew Scriptures. But then He came, for He saved the best for last. Think about sin for just a moment. Sin's first cup. The first cup, just in, in, in relation to the things that, that are done in this wedding, sin's first cup is the sweetest, isn't it? Sin's first cup is the sweetest. But what we've learned is that as we continue on in sin, it doesn't get sweeter. It gets worse. And it gets worse. Until we realize how deceptive that first cup was. And with Jesus, when he comes, he gives us the best that never changes. It would never grow bad. That wine and those six water pots... That wasn't going to get anybody drunk. And I'm not telling you that it wasn't proper wine. I'm just telling you, because Jesus made it one, we'll get anybody drunk. They were going to appreciate the very fact that it was the best they had ever tasted. You see, sin's first cup is always the sweetest, but with God, that which follows is much superior. Jesus' first sign and his preliminary purpose were to meet this emergency and bring joy into that wedding where doom and gloom were on the edge. But, but the, per, the primary purpose of this sign, as we see in verse 11, was designed to display the Lord's glory and to convince his disciples that he was all that he claimed to be. But the new wine, the new wine symbolized A new creation. Rich and full of glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This has been a study of of comparison and contrast. But it's one that brings us to realize that it's all about the glory of the Messiah. This was a primarily private kind of sign. It wasn't an overtly public sign. Who knew, as the scripture really teaches us, that this happened except whom? Well, Mary knew, the disciples knew, and the servants knew. The bridegroom didn't know. The governor didn't know. And so it was a focused sign for the mother and the disciples. Jesus was now going to reveal himself as the Messiah in his way and in his time. And then we're told in John 12, we'll close, we're going to close with this. We're going to actually start here next time. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. And we'll start there for the next section. And so, 
The first sign. The glory of Christ revealed in his creative power to change water into wine and to point us to what he came to do is to die for our sins, to shed his blood, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to love us with an everlasting love, and to draw us to his heart, to love him, and to serve him. Shall we pray? Father, our thanks to you for this day and for another opportunity, Lord, to serve you, to learn of you, to grow more and more into the very likeness of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would allow us the opportunity to meditate upon this passage, to be encouraged by the things that we can learn from it, to realize, Lord, that there's nothing too hard for you for our lives. When we face troubles or trials or when we face shame, when we face uh, catastrophic events, There may be more in the horizon for us, Lord, but we realize, Lord, that we're never alone because you're with us. We thank you. We thank you for your love in that respect. We thank you for teaching us, Lord God, that you are patient and kind. And that even as you with your mother, with Mary, you 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 spoke such gentle words to make a point that your hour is what you came to focus upon for us. So Lord, we thank you and we bless you for the privilege of coming to your throne this evening. Continue, Lord, to do your work in us in every place and aspect of our life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a good evening. Have a, a wonderful, wonderful evening. Please continue to pray for uh, the ladies as they are in retreat right now and they'll be making their way home tomorrow. I just pray for a safe journey home and that they come with, with a great and wonderful testimony of what God is doing and what God is going to do. It's always something that affects this church, so we, we look forward to hearing what God has done. So keep them in prayer. Well, sing a song, and uh, if you need prayer after that, please come up. Someone will be here.